Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the sixth episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series, I'll be telling you the history of professional football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game from the Mog game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. By the end of the Second World War, the world looked like a very different place to that of six years earlier but the after-effects would be far-reaching. For football, there was a boom in attendances at home as society tried to return to normal. But British exceptionalism was coming to an end, and there would be some chastening lessons for an England team that still perceived itself to be the best in the world to learn over the eight years following readmission. This is the story of international football in England and Wales, during the immediate post-war years. The seeds of the readmission of the home nations into FIFA can still be seen on a sheet of yellowing paper at FIFA's museum in Zurich. Stanley Rouse had trained as a schoolteacher and played as an amateur goalkeeper, but a hand injury marked the end of his playing days and he switched to refereeing instead, becoming a Football League referee in 1927 and then rising through the ranks to referee the 1934 FA Cup final between Manchester City and Portsmouth. Upon his retirement from refereeing, Rouse became the secretary of the Football Association, and four years later, in 1937, he wrote a simplified version of the laws of the game, which superseded the sprawling version, much of it written in Victorian English which had been in use since 1863. In their own understated way, Rouse's streamlined reinterpretation of the rules of football would remain in place, almost completely untouched, until 1997. It is a page from this notebook that hangs in FIFA's museum. Rouse, who had described the home nation's withdrawal from FIFA in 1928 as withdrawing into ourselves, was determined to get the Football Association back into FIFA. And the New World Order, even if not everybody knew exactly what that would come to look like, provided a perfect opportunity for him to do so. And regardless of Rouse's own internationalist outlook, 
there was a pressing need to do so anyway. Shortly before the outbreak of war in 1939, London had been selected to host the 1944 Olympic Games, and it was widely expected that England's capital city would be hosting the 1948 Games instead. It wouldn't say much for the spirit of togetherness in the world of international sport if the hosts of this event still weren't members of football's international governing body, especially with a football tournament forming part of the Games. So in November 1945, Rouse, along with FA chairman Arthur Drury, travelled to Zurich and found that FIFA were more than open to the idea of the home nations returning. The following year, shortly after the International Olympic Committee confirmed London as the host of the 1948 Olympic Games, England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland were all readmitted to FIFA. This is Movietone. Lionel Gamlin reporting. Here they are, some of the immense crowds on their way to Wembley Stadium to enjoy the pageantry, the music and the ceremony on the day of the opening of the Olympic Games. Mercifully, the English summer had arrived a couple of days earlier and the weather was blazing hot for the start of the 14th modern Olympiad. This was the second time that London had welcomed athletes and their supporters for such an outstanding event in the world of sport. And the scene at Wembley was one that will long be remembered by all who were present. After tremendous cheering had greeted the arrival of the King, His Majesty went down to the arena, accompanied by Mr Edstrom, President of the International Olympic Committee, and Lord Burley, Chairman of the Organising Committee. Members of both committees were presented. The football tournament at the 1948 Olympic Games was held at a variety of venues across London and the south of England, from Fratton Park and the Goldstone Ground on the south coast, to stadiums in London which included Walthamstow Avenue's Green Pond Road, Dulwich Hamlet's Champion Hill and Ilford's Lim Road. All clear nods to the ongoing influence of the amateur game and to the amateur ethos of the Olympic Games. The Great Britain Olympic team of 1948 was managed by Matt Busby, the manager of Manchester United, and Busby picked his team from all four of the home nations. In accordance with the rules of the tournament at the time, his team was made up entirely of amateur players, so there were representatives from such clubs as Enfield, Walton and Hersham and Bromley, as well as several amateur players signed with football league clubs. In addition to this, all four home nations were represented, and Glasgow's Queen's Park was the most represented of all, with five players in the squad. In addition to this, There were also players from the Welsh clubs Pembroke Borough and Troedirw, as well as Ireland's Belfast Celtic. This team, however, only had two warm-up games to get acquainted with each other and performed underwhelmingly. 21,000 people turned out at Highbury to see them beat the Netherlands after extra time in the first round and in the quarter-finals they beat France at Craven Cottage. Here, though, Great Britain's luck ran out and they were beaten in the semi-finals by Yugoslavia, and then in the bronze medal match by Denmark, both times at Wembley. Sweden won the gold medal. Four years later in Helsinki, the Great Britain team would be knocked out in the first round of the competition by Luxembourg, and they would never seriously challenge for the gold medal again, failing to qualify at all from 1964 on, and withdrawing altogether after the FA ended the distinction between amateur and professional players in 1974.
Readmission to FIFA, of course, meant that the home nations would be put to the test over the long-standing claim that they remain the best in the world, even though they'd never tested themselves in a World Cup. FIFA made qualification easy, at least, deciding to make the 1949-50 home internationals the qualifying tournament, with two places available. Scotland, however, threw a spanner in the works of this, by stating that they would only take their place in the World Cup finals if they won the home internationals. When England won 1-0 at Hampden Park in front of a crowd of 134,000 people in May 1950 to win the competition, Scotland declined to take their place. This place was offered to France and Ireland, both of whom also declined it. Even before England made their trip to Brazil though, there were signs that this tournament wasn't going to be the procession to glory that many thought it would be. The performance of Great Britain at the 1948 Olympic Games was a hint that the tournament football might be somewhat different to anything that British teams were accustomed to. Whilst a 2-0 loss against Ireland at Goodison Park in September 1949 was the first on home soil against a foreign nation. There were two Ireland teams at the time. One is now the Republic, the other is now Northern Ireland. On top of that, shortly before they were due to travel, England lost defender Neil Franklin, who was persuaded to Colombia, a team then unaffiliated with FIFA, to play in their league. The promises made to Franklin and other British players who travelled in search of what was called El Dorado were almost entirely broken. But none of this meant that the loss of Neil Franklin wasn't a significant loss to the England team in 1950. The FA didn't exactly help with preparations for the tournament either. They had organised a goodwill tour of Canada at the same time as the finals and weren't going to be cancelling this on the basis of a minor inconvenience like a World Cup finals. Stanley Matthews, still England's most talismanic player at the age of 35, had been sent on the trip as an ambassador and had to undertake a 28-hour plane journey to join the squad for their second game against the United States. Even for those who didn't have to undergo this tortuous extra journey, it was a 31-hour flight from London to Rio de Janeiro, including stops for refuelling in Paris, Lisbon, Dakar and Recife on the way. And when the squad landed in Rio de Janeiro, three men in gas masks stepped onto the plane and sprayed everyone on board with pesticide, leaving them coughing and spluttering. Once settled, their problems didn't end. Their hotel would best be described as basic, and issues with the food were such that Coach Walter Winterbottom ended up marching into the kitchen in the hotel and demanding to cook for the players himself. A conflation of matters had come together to leave the team in just about the worst condition that they could find themselves, to play against the best of the rest of the world. In England's group were Chile, the United States of America and Spain. For their opening game in the Maracanã, England and Chile found themselves opening their tournament in a stadium that was still under construction and in changing rooms almost unfit for purpose. Still though, this was an England team of undoubted talent, featuring such names as Billy Wright, Wilf Mannion, Tom Finney, Stan Mortensen, Jackie Milburn and Alf Ramsey. Less than 30,000 people turned out to watch it but England beat Chile by two goals to nil, 
thanks to goals from Mortensen and Mannion. Again though, the Football Association found a way to mess up what should have been a winning position. Under the format of this tournament, there would be no World Cup final this time around, with the four group winners playing a final group to determine the winners of the tournament. And this meant that the margin for errors in the first group stage of the competition was almost non-existent. England travelled to Belo Horizonte and were met there by Matthews. But after Drury, the FA chairman who had been at the meeting with Stanley Rouse which got England back into FIFA four years earlier, was now the sole member of the FA's selection committee and he had a strict policy of never changing the team when England had won. Stanley Matthews' 28-hour sprint to get there from Canada had been a complete waste of time. The game that followed has been mythologised to the point of being unrecognisable. With a film about the USA team at this tournament, the game of their lives, even taking the editorial decision to falsely portray Stan Mortensen, who was born in South Shields, as a sneering toff. A lack of cameras at the match, with only a few minutes of film remaining, and a dearth of impartial contemporary accounts of it, have allowed storytellers to use it as a canvas onto which they can project their own biases. What we know for certain, of course, is that the game was won by the United States of America by a goal to nil, with that goal coming by the Haitian Joe Gaitians, seven minutes from half-time. Even this goal, however, has been interpreted in several different ways, with some claiming that it came about for a wayward shot that bounced off the back of his head and others claiming it was a full-length diving header of which Keith Houchen would be proud. What we can say with a degree of certainty is that the best-known photograph of the goal is a fake, showing the ball on the wrong side of the goal netting. The ball was almost certainly added afterwards. Even after the match, the myth-making continued. Legend has it that in publications that did report the World Cup matches, so unexpected was the result that it was presumed that the 1-0 scoreline was a typing error, and so it was reported that England had won on a score-nil of 10-0 or 10-1. However, historical newspapers online at the British Newspaper Archive show this story to be a myth. And whilst the scale of the surprise was huge, this was after all a part-time team beating a full-time team, the professionals of England were hardly the multi-millionaires of today. At the time, the maximum wage was £12 a week, still only twice the average wage of the time, and it's also worth considering that many of these players had lost considerable chunks of their playing careers to the war, while their fitness levels may also have been affected by ongoing rationing at home, which had become even more severe than it had been during the war. The biggest myth of all concerning this match is that the USA knocked England out of the 1950 World Cup Finals. This defeat came with one match to play against Spain in Rio de Janeiro and a three-goal win for England would still have seen them qualify for the final pool, but it was not to be. In front of a crowd of more than 74,000 people at the Maracanã, a goal from Athletic Bilbao's Telmo Zara, three minutes into the second half, was enough to confirm what had already been clear to those who had seen the previous two and a half games of England's World Cup campaign. This England team was nowhere near the best in the world and thoroughly deserved its first round elimination from the tournament. (music) 
It is certainly true to say that England's elimination from the 1950 World Cup didn't receive an enormous amount of attention at home, at least certainly not immediately. The tournament wasn't televised at all, and there wasn't any radio coverage either in the UK. Even the newspapers paid the entire tournament scant attention, with the cost of being too high for reporters to be sent to cover it themselves. The defeat against the USA had come on the same day as a first home defeat against the West Indies at cricket, and this hogged the headlines on the day after that match, with only a few column inches being offered to the football team's loss in Brazil. Arthur Drury had commented after the match that the result had been unbelievable, and many British news outlets simply repeated this assertion while offering little insight into what had gone wrong or why. It took the newsreels to get to the players and ask them what they thought had gone wrong that summer. The England captain, Billy Wright, had quite a bit to say about his own team's shortcomings, as well as about the strength of these underrated foreigners. For the world of English soccer, third quarter 1950 poses a straight question. Are the 42 million spectators who crowd into the grounds of Britain's 92 league football clubs each year getting full value for their money? Each Saturday, watching crowds throughout Britain thrill to the footwork of the finest players the country can produce. Yet, a picked team of those players met defeat in the World Cup almost as soon as it landed in Brazil. What went wrong in Rio? We visit Wolverhampton to find out. Here's Billy Wright, Rio 11 captain. What happened in Rio, Billy? Well, what did happen, Joe? Well, there are lots of things that happened. We lost the World Cup for a start off, but there was a lot of different things we had to contend with out there, which people in this country I don't think know about. They, the atmosphere for a start off. We play, remember, we played Chile in the first game, and we played about half the game, and there seemed to be no air. You know, when you're playing in this yes, country, no, you, you've got the lungs filling up with air all the while, but there you haven't. And we had to have oxygen at the uh, interval to try and restore that bit of life in, in our bodies, but it just didn't seem to work at all. And we were playing as if we were struggling for air all the while. And about play, Billy, any big difference out there? Well, Joe, I'd say that the football difference in football over there is it's played at a far greater speed than it is in this country. The, the professional players out there are, are far more, shall I say, skilled than we are. Because, for instance, they, they, they practice. They're coached every single day. They, they've got ball work. And they're not only footballers, but they're athletes as well. They, they, they can do 100 yards in, shall I say, 10, 11 seconds each and every one of them. And that is, I think, the difference in football in Rio than it is in this country. On the 28th of July 1952, at the Olympic Stadium in Helsinki... Hungary beat Sweden by six goals to nil to reach the final of that summer's Olympic football tournament. Amongst those present was Stanley Rouse, and at the end of the match it was agreed that Hungary would travel to England in November of the following year for a friendly international. Neither Rouse nor Sandor Barks, Rouse's counterpart at the Hungarian Football Association with whom the match had been agreed, would likely have guessed at the time just how important this match might turn out to be. That Hungary should have been one of European football's most powerful nations by the early 1950s was a combination of luck, preparation and tradition. 
Hungary were indeed fortunate to have a group of players come through around the same time, around which such a strong team could be built. At its core was six, Ferenc Pushkas, Sandor Coxis, Nandor Hidakuti, Zoltan Shibor, Josef Boschkic and Giola Grosic, who were all of the absolute highest quality. But there was more to this success than a group of players arriving at the right place at the right time. Hungary had initially grown in strength throughout the 1920s and 1930s. They provided a considerable amount of the coaching staff in Italy's Serie A by the start of the 1930s, had reached the World Cup final in 1938 and had, in Ferenc Varos and MTK, two of the strongest European club sides of the interwar years. Gluing all of this together was the innovative coaching of Gustav Sebes. Sebes retained wingers, but made their positions more fluid, evolving a formation which moved the ball around quickly, broke quickly into attacking formations, took shooting opportunities from unlikely angles whenever they had the opportunity. These were the first sightings of the 4-2-4 formation that Brazil would claim as their own in Sweden in 1958. Sebes was also a perfectionist. When England played a rest of the world eleven at Wembley in October 1953 to mark the 90th anniversary of the formation of the Football Association, he travelled to London to watch the match, even though none of his players were playing in it. Noting that the ball rolled differently on the Wembley pitch, he made sure that his players used English manufactured balls until the upcoming match, on a pitch with the same dimensions as the pitch at Wembley. It has been said that, in the tunnel before the match, the England players joked amongst themselves about the kit that the Hungarian team had arrived in. We'll be alright here, Stan. They can't even afford proper kit, said Captain Billy Wright to winger Stanley Matthews, apparently unaware of the possibility that lighter, more comfortable clothing might allow for more fluid, free-flowing football. The players took to the pitch, completed their formalities and, in the few seconds left before kick-off, the Hungarian players approached the centre spot. Ferenc Puskas, their captain, flicked the ball up and juggled it for a few seconds before idly flicking it to one of his teammates, who then repeated the trick. Whether this was a power play, or just some absent-minded tomfoolery, it certainly caught the attention of BBC television commentator Kenneth Wollstenholm who noted how difficult England's afternoon might be if this was a hint of the Hungarians' team's abilities. There is number five, but he's not the centre-half. Now a chance for Hidaguti. It's a goal! Beautiful pass to Mortensen, who's got a clear run to Saul. It must be a goal. must be a goal. What a bad kick by Mary. Seaball cutting in the outside left, back to Pushkas. It's a goal! Hidakuti. 20 minutes play, Hungary 2, England 1. Hidakuti scoring both goals for Hungary, Sewell scoring for England. Whether that ball would have gone into the net if Vilekesley hadn't been there, I don't know. Put I a chance for him? Pushkas, the 
Hungarian skipper. There's the outside left Seaborg right over on the right wing. Oh, a lovely goal! 24 minutes, Hungary 3, England 1. And that was Pushkas, the inside left and captain, who scored that one. And my goodness, if he can turn on tricks like this, we ought to have him on the music hall. Mr. Horn, the, uh, the Dutch referee, given a free kick against Bill Eckersley. Mr. Horn was the referee here last year when England beat Belgium by five goals to nil. And it's the right half, Botschik, going to take the kick. It's a goal, my goodness! Let's see what Stanley can do. He's not been able to do anything at all in this match yet. It's George Robert and a wonderful save. Stan Matthews with the corner. Mortensen, who's got a clear run. It's a goal! Uh, number five, don't think that's the centre half. That's Botsik, the right half. Pushkas. Kocis hit the post. What check? It's a goal! Pushkas. Hit a goodie! It's a goal! Fifty-five minutes gone. England 2, Hungary 6. Oh, dear me, it must be a penalty! Penalty! Now then, well, must be Alf Ramsey. Here he comes. The Hungarians appear to have decided it's time, and there is the whistle. It's all over. England 3, Hungary 6. England 3, Hungary 6. It took 45 seconds for the truth to come crashing home. England struggled against teams that set up in any shape other than the WM formation, and deep-lying centre-forwards invariably unsettled them. This had been known for some time. And on top of this, there seemed to have been a resistance towards any form of evolution on the part of anyone associated with the English game. Even such simple decisions as having players numbered unconventionally, so that it wasn't as simple as the two marking the eleven, the three marking the seven, or the five marking the nine, seemed to completely flummox the England team, who were marking the numbers on the shirts rather than the players wearing them. The higher shorts, slimmer-fitting shirts and lighter boots hadn't come about because Stalinism made it impossible for the Hungarian players to afford the clogs that the England team were wearing. It helped them to be more lithe, more athletic, to move the entire game on from the barely evolved cycle of kick and rush to which the English had committed themselves almost a century earlier. It was 4-1 by half-time and 6-3 by the end, and even that scoreline flattered the England team. Whilst the eventual margin of victory for Hungary was big, it might well have been a lot worse. They scored their sixth goal after 53 minutes and took their foot off the pedal after this. By the end of the match, Hungary were playing at walking pace. 
England had been doing this pretty much for the entire 90 minutes. Six members of that England team would never be selected to play again, including Stan Mortensen and Alf Ramsey. The scoreline would have been bad enough in complete isolation, but it was much more than just that. This was a victory from which there were no consolations for England. The Guardian's post-match report summed it up in the starkest possible terms. The English team was competent by British standards except to inside forward, but on the evidence of this afternoon this standard will not long be good enough for England to retain her position in the high places of the football world. The essential difference lay in attack, where none of the English forwards except Matthews approached the speed, ball control and positional play of the Hungarians, which are as near as perfect as one could hope to see. England's first defeat to non-British opposition against Spain in 1929 had been written off as a mixture of fluke and circumstances conspiring against them. The same had been repeated in the wake of the 1950 World Cup Finals debacle against the USA and Spain. But those losses felt distant now. This one, however, came at Wembley on a November afternoon. It was live on BBC Radio and Television. This result and performance were both very close to home indeed. No lessons had been learned by the time of the match against Hungary. A poisonous combination of arrogance, short-sightedness, insularity and resistance to change had, over the course of less than half a century, destroyed both the truth and the myth. The truth was that, in terms of international football, the home nations had huge advantages over every other country. They could have learnt from the world and taken it back to its most developed league system to refine it. The myth is that they still had this advantage by anywhere near 1950. Withdrawing from FIFA in 1928 had denied the home nations the chance to prove themselves in the first three World Cup tournaments. We'll never know whether they would have won in 1930, 1934 or 1938, but we do know that none of this could ever have been any different. This was England, after all. The USA result wasn't the one that eliminated England from the 1950 World Cup. The Spain result was, and that was the one that people in England should have seen as the more telling result. The world had moved on, and the home nations, most visibly England, but this did apply to all four, had not. For all the obituaries and the sudden influx of newer ideas into the British game, though, no lessons could be learned in time for the 1954 World Cup finals in Switzerland. It was too soon. Again, the home internationals were being used as the qualifying group for the home nations. Again, FIFA offered the top two teams a place in the finals. This time, though, when England won the group and Scotland finished second, as had happened four years earlier, Scotland didn't turn down a place in the finals as they had done then. The 1954 World Cup finals were held in Switzerland and FIFA replaced the all-group matches from the 1950 tournament which threw up a final but only by accident. This time around, the 16 qualifying teams were divided into four groups of four with each group containing two seeded and two unseeded teams. Only four matches were scheduled for each group with both seeded teams playing the both of the unseeded teams. 
Another oddity was that extra time was played in group matches if the score was level after 90 minutes, with the result being a draw if the scores were still level after 120. England were seeded. Scotland were not. Scotland were beaten 1-0 by Austria and 7-0 by Uruguay. England were drawn to play the hosts, Switzerland and Belgium, with the other seeded team in their group being Italy. They kicked off in Basel against Belgium, where a surprisingly small crowd of 14,000, there were only three lower in the entire remainder of the tournament, saw a very entertaining game. A goal from Leopold Anul gave Belgium an early lead, before goals from Ivor Broadis and Nat Lofthaus gave England a half-time lead. They extended this lead with a second goal for Broadis 18 minutes into the second half, but two goals in five minutes for Belgium brought them back level and forced the match into extra time. Lofthouse's second goal put England back into the lead in the first minute of extra time, but an own goal from Jimmy Dickinson three minutes later meant that the two teams ended up level and sharing a point apiece. This, combined with Italy's win over Belgium, meant that England had to beat the host Switzerland in their final group match in Bern to qualify. This time, however, they came through the test, with goals from Jimmy Mullen and Dennis Wilshaw giving them a 2-0 win. Switzerland also qualified after beating Italy for the second time in the tournament. Having won the opening match of the group against them by two goals to one, they also beat them 4-1 in a playoff for a place in the quarter-finals. England now had to put up with another quirk of the format of this particular World Cup. The four group winning teams were drawn to play each other in the knockout stages to provide one finalist, and the four runners-up played against each other to provide the second. England were drawn to play Uruguay, the holders, and nobody in the England camp could have been under any illusion about what an uphill battle this might be. Not only had Uruguay put seven goals past Scotland earlier in this tournament, but they'd also beaten England 2-1 in Montevideo a year earlier. England were outpowered. They levelled an early goal, but fell behind again and never recovered, losing in the end by four goals to two. It wasn't an unexpected defeat, and there was little hysteria at home. The Hungary match had been just eight months earlier, and that had been the result that had changed everything. England hadn't had a terrible tournament in some respects. They'd beaten the host nation and had only been knocked out by the holders. But it was the final confirmation that change had to come. It's just that June 1954 was too soon to effect any of this. A new generation of coaches were coming through, who were thinking about the game in a different way. But most of them were coming from clubs rather than through the international setup, reflecting a broader tilt in the balance of power within British football. If the game in England was to evolve, and this evolution was inevitable elsewhere in the world, the governing bodies were hopelessly ill-equipped to do so. Post-war evolution would come from the club game, rather than the FA or the Football League. Mr. Sandman Bum, 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 bum. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Bum, 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 bum. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Bum, 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 bum. Make him
bum 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 Give him two lips like roses and clover bum 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 Then tell him that his lonesome nights are over Sunday I'm so alone bum 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 Don't have nobody to call my own bum 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 Please turn on your magic beam Mr. Sandman bring me a dream Thank you for listening to this 200% podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Find us on Facebook by searching 200%.net Or on Twitter at 2 Be good to each other.